Check Me Out is a production of Panhandle PBS and Amarillo College's FM 90 and is recorded at AC's Washington Street campus. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm Hillary Holsey, and today we are talking about a very special topic that was presented to us as a potential topic. I I think it's cool when somebody's coming to you saying, hey, you might want to talk about this. Um, And that special topic is Latin American lit and literature, I should say, lit. Um, And today we are joined by a guest that you've heard previous. um, That's Chris Hudson. And we also have another guest from Amarillo College. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I am Emily Gilbert. I am the Director of Information Services for Amarillo College, which, as I always say, is just a fancy way of saying that I'm in charge of the libraries at AC. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Um, Chris, you have a class that you are introducing to our curriculum here at Amarillo College, and that is based on Latin American literature. So why don't you, let's just dive right in and talk about what that means. What, what, how do you classify that? Well, it's, it's a really good question because it's not something that's really established. Uh, when I was talking about setting this class up for the school, they were saying, well, we, um, we'd like to have someone teach a class with Hispanic literature. And my first question was, well, what do you mean by that? And so I think that there's, there's problems with the, with the term Hispanic typically means Spanish speaking, but it's often related just to Spain. However, lots of Hispanic Americans prefer to be called Hispanic. Then there's the uh, sort of the rise in the 650s and 60s of the Chicano, La Raza Unida, and, uh, the, and those movements. So there's the Latino-Latina way of discussing it with the either the at sign, you know, where it's like the A, what we use with the A with the circle of O, so it kind of covers both things. It's kind of cool that way. And then there's Latinx, which I don't, you know, I always say Latinx, uh, but I don't <laughs> think you're supposed to say that. Um, and there, there's various there's various levels of that. So we're talking uh, a couple of different things, either everything ever written in Spanish. So wow. that can go a ways back. Or we're talking, my uh, background is in Latin American literature. So the, the continent, uh, uh, the Americas, basically. And that's, um, that, of course, has just a, a vast history as well, uh, starting in uh, 1500s. But it's legitimately modern. I, I sort of focus on the modernist side. So starting... Uh, when uh, every country started having its own sort of modernist revolutions in literature. And I brought in today this book here, uh, Carlos Fuentes' uh, book, La Nueva Novela Hispanoamericana, which is uh, was written in 1969. And it's kind of funny because pre-1969, uh, or, or pre-this book, when Spanish literature, Hispanic literature was talked about, it would, it, would be, it would come out of Spain and they would put like nine Spanish authors who are the current authors who are writing and they throw in a Latin American, you know, oh yeah, they talk Spanish over there. So they throw it in. So when Carlos Fuentes wrote this book, he did nine 
Latin American authors, and he threw in one Spanish guy just for uh, <laughs> just to show Juan Gotisolo. Um, but that was at the beginning of the the Latin American boom, which I think most people are. That's what uh, people associate with Latin American literature. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, Hundred Years of Solitude, Love in the Time of Cholera. Uh, Every a lot of countries had their own sort of major author, and and a lot of them won Nobel prizes, which in like uh, Mario Vargas Llosa in Peru and and Garcia Marquez in Colombia and Fuentes in Mexico and Octavio Paz in Mexico, and there's there's a pretty vast literature out there to talk about it, but the class is zeroing in on the border, and the border basically is. What got established in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and what established the the Rio Grande on our side, Rio Bravo is called over there, and uh, and then there was a little purchase that sort of picked up some of New Mexico and Arizona, and uh, then you know basically Mexico lost half its landmass. And over 100,000 Mexican citizens became retroactively American citizens. And uh, it created quite a difference. And border literature is really something uh, unique because it's, in a certain way, you can think of it as kind of the third way. Uh, the, the Chicano movement brought it up as Aslan, uh, A-T-Z-L-A-N, that this whole area was a... Uh, it depends on who you talk to, an ethnicity, a race, but certainly a culture and a way of looking at life differently where your identity is transverses different kinds of borders all the time. And um, it's there's stories about old uh, uh, Texas Mexicans uh, who – who grew up in the valley, who uh, the, the original border was the Nueces River. And uh, or that's what Mexico wanted it to be, and, uh, and the Texans wanted it to be the Rio Grande and Americans. And then, but it used to be you'd run into old, older uh, Mexicans that would say, when they'd cross the Nueces River, they'd say, oh, now we're in Texas. So it's, it's a long brewing... Uh, controversy, uh, uh, question of identity, and the literature really shows that. It shows that search for identity, uh, like Americo Paredes' novel, uh, George Washington Gomez, and uh, <laughs> lots, of, lots of great books to, to cover. So why is this important now? Why, why, why explore this? Why did they come to you for this particular class? Well, I think, and correct me if you, maybe you know the numbers, but I think we're 65% Hispanic student population at Emerald College, and Hispanic literature has never been taught before here. So it's, there's something that needs to be done there. Uh, I think uh, it's a literature that's, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, I think, I think uh, Gloria Anzaldúa talks about it as being, it allow Chicano literature, Chicano, Chicano literature allows us to see. Um, and just those, it, it's, it's fascinating to me that the sort of strongest theory, I think, uh, about the literature comes from, uh, uh, comes from uh, women and uh, usually uh, LGBT community uh, because the, the, uh, 
the crossing of lines of sexuality and gender and uh, and culture and race are all part of their uh, all part of their life, and it's really forefronted in a lot of the literature. So it's a pretty interesting topic. Why do you think that is? I think, at least according to the to the theorist uh, like uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, she it's because that's the way their uh, that's the way their lives are. They're they're um, particularly women uh, growing up in a in a very patriarchal society, but also being uh, depending el, el otro lado, the other side, which at, which goes both ways. You look one side, the other side is Mexico. You look from the other side, the other side is Texas or California or all along the Southwest, and you have to negotiate and translate those kinds of identity issues and. I think for the theorist that the the literature and the ideas of that translation and the and you know very specifically bilingual literature where and Spanglish and and all the kinds of different kinds is uh, part just part of that identity process and so it made sense it all it all fit together and so they it's talked about sometimes as that third way you know neither either American or, or Mexican, neither male or female, all those kinds of issues. It seems like the idea of identity and trying to figure out who you are is something that really anybody could relate to. We all at different piece, points in our lives are trying to figure out who we are and where we fit in the world. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that the, uh, the Latino, Latina authors uh, see that as a, as a very commonplace functional part of their lives. And uh, it translates over into, it translates is such a weird word because it has that double meaning, right? But it translates over into the way the, um, the stories come across. And there's lots, of, there's lots of search for identity in these stories. And to Emily's point, I mean, when you're putting people in front of books, you know, I don't know if someone would ever come to you and say, hey, I need to read a book about an identity crisis. I don't know that that's <laughs> the, the first thing you would think of, but it's totally relatable. Um, uh, how do you, just to jump off of some of the things you've been talking about, how do you, when someone like Chris comes to you and says, hey, I'm doing a class on this, how do you curate um, any set of books so that if somebody who took his class comes in and says, hey, we read these books, what else should I read that relates to that? That is a great question. Um, I think from there we build off maybe what kind of connection they had with the material, um, maybe a specific um, piece of their identity that they really uh, connected with the with the uh, fiction or or nonfiction uh, book or story that they read. Um, in terms of Chris's class, we actually have curated a guide that is full of resources that we have both in print and um, electronic that can help students in this class. So there are, uh, of course, database articles as. Uh, we always support those in the library, but also some fiction stories that maybe are not necessarily written by um, the same authors that he's covering in his class, but are written by um, newer Hispanic authors or even young adults that um, are struggling with this um, idea of identity and finding their identity as uh, DACA children in the United States or um uh, folks whose uh, parents or grandparents are from Mexico or um, a Latin America, another Latin American country across the border, and now they are trying to find their own fit in the United States and trying to realize what 
what do I do in the United States? How do I fit and how do I still keep the idea of my culture and the knowledge from my culture kind of intermixed into my daily lives? How do these themes, I mean, we talked about identity, we talked about, um, you know, some of the history. What other themes are present in the fiction works of these books? I think one of the the most interesting streams uh, of Themes uh, comes. Uh, Sandra Cisneros uh, talks about it uh, in her, uh, or writes about it in her book *Woman Hollering Creek*. Um, and Gloria Anzaldúa talks about it in a more theoretical way. But there are these three women who are um, icons in Mexican culture. There's the Virgen de Guadalupe, uh, which you see all the time in um, pictures and retablos and things like that. There's uh, the La Malinche, uh, who was the translator for Cortez, uh, and is often considered to be uh, a traitor uh, to uh, to the indigenous people, but at other times is also talked about as being sort of the mother of the mestizo the mestizo culture. Um, and then there's La Llorona, which I think there's a movie out about right now. I, I haven't seen it, but. La Llorona is another uh, another figure uh, who is uh, sort of a, it'd be a great uh, Halloween story, right, for this time, but a figure who is searching for her uh, her lost children and crying. Llorona means crying, you know, the crying, big crying person. So uh, <laughs> the um, it's interesting what a lot of the Latina and uh, Chicana theorists and uh, writers are trying to try to uh, re what do, what, what do you say uh, reinvigorate but uh, not reinvigorate but rename re turn them into positive figures like La Malinche rather than being a traitor or, or someone who was uh, raped by the, the Spanish culture but as someone as a as a symbol of power rather than a symbol of defeat, so it's in the same kind of situation of the re- recuperation of the word queer or something like that, where there's you you take retake possession of something that was taken away from you. That's yeah. cool. I'm hearing a lot of women authors, which is you know something that I'm happy to hear. Obviously, uh, what about in nonfiction? What is something that you well at least that you'll see in your class or something that you are, are looking at? Well, I'm, I'm gathering those things up right now. I'm definitely going to be doing a lot with Gloria Anzaldúa uh, because she, I think she's really the major theorist. Uh, kind of coincidentally, when I was going through graduate school at the University of Texas, there were some really major Latino uh, theorists going to school there. There was Americo Paredes, who's a novelist and theorist and, and does a lot of work, which uh, is great for the like the Tejano show here, you know, the, uh, he does like corridos and, uh, and, uh, songs about that are along the border. He was there. Uh, Rolando Hinoosa was there also a novelist, Ramon Saldivar, Jose Limon, all these other people that really were uh, ground floor people of, of bringing Latino, uh, literature out into the, out into the world. I mean, it wasn't until, the 1950s that basically in the in the hinterlands here we actually taught American literature as a as a course 
uh, you know, and that was the sort of main figures. I think the only woman that made it in was probably Emily Dickinson. But uh, Chicano literature has this uh, basically some of them, some, I mean, they, it, they're going back. The research goes back and finds things that were written in the 20s and the 30s, but all the way back into the, uh, into the 19th century as a kind of unique, uh, literature and it's um, it's it's growing. It's a great uh, area for research. I know that I'm going to have in this class uh, the opportunity for students that I'm sure Emily's going to be uh, helping me with. But the, op- the students are going to get to research and read uh, their own work, uh, their other novels, other historical texts, and things like that that they research and present them to class. So I'm going to have a limited amount of readings that the entire class is going to do, but then uh, we're going to focus on research. For anyone who has interest in this topic, what is the book they should start with? Where Where is a great jumping off point? Again, I think uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, Borderlands, La Frontera, uh, gives you the sort of uh, background of the kind of ideas, the big ideas that are going on in things. Um, there's a number of good anthologies that are out. Even Norton has a Latino uh, anthology. There's some problems with it, as I understand, but uh, that's pretty typical of Norton anthologies, right? For Plus they cost like $500 or something. <laughs> um, those kinds of things, there's, uh, there, it's, it's a great field to go into because there's lots of people writing in it. There's new stuff all the time. So I've, I brought some poetry books of, of poets who are, are working right now. And um, it's it's easy to uh, to get uh, to get into uh, pretty much, but the uh, for Latin America in general, I always just love this book called uh, "Open Veins in Latin America" by Eduardo Galeano, and it's uh, it's basically about the nefarious activities that the United States uh, uh, has taken has done in, in Latin America, and it's a pretty good introduction to that. But, um, you know, some of your Texas history, it's, it's just an interesting thing. It's, it's a good thing to sort of bounce off of what you know about Texas history, because there's a lot of, uh, there, there's been a lot of cutting and pasting of, of Texas history through the years. There's this great book um, about the Alamo by a Chicana artist named um, Emma Perez, who's, it's about a woman a trans woman at the Alamo that um, that uh, sort of travels and and has it, it's a very interesting book, but it's a whole rewriting of of the Alamo story and there's there's things like that that go on too. So it's a good thing, as I said, it uh, great art uh, allows you to see it. This these kinds of issues and and a. a, a a look again at some of the history that we know is is always worthwhile. The book about the Alamo is that historical fiction, or is it a, a true story that's been? It's, no, it's it's a novel. Yeah, historical okay. fiction. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, mm-hmm. it It'd does. Be really interesting to read kind of a, a book about the Alamo from the Texan side, and then read her book about mm-hmm. the opposite side, Mexican side. That outside looking in uh, perspective is really important especially now um and i i know the truth is usually somewhere in the middle of all of it but um i wasn't even thinking about taking that cultural perspective um 
it's uh, it's an important thing to do. Um, so you also have films in your class, which yes. Um, so let's talk about adaptation then for a moment, because uh, <laughs> that's a it's a tough thing in general. Um, how did you choose the films that you wanted to show? Um, is are they more historical? Or are they more fiction? Well, El Norte is uh, is kind of a classic film about immigration. It, it comes from the 80s. Uh, it's about some Salvadoran brother and sister who uh, immigrate, who do basically what we've been seeing, the so-called caravans and all of this uh, from Central America. Did that. They go through Mexico. It follows them through Mexico and into the United States. Uh, it's very funny. It's very touching, but it also shows how, how uh, harsh that, uh, that immigration can be. Um, I threw in, in, uh, Cormac McCarthy, all the pretty horses, but I think it's the only real sort of Anglo angle, uh, that I'm going to be putting in. Uh, but if you know that story, it's about, a uh, Texas, uh, cowboy who, who falls in love with a Mexican woman and, uh, you know, gets in trouble in Mexico and basically has to walk back. And um, it's, you know, it has some Cormac McCarthy kind of. McCarthy has a whole trilogy on the border called uh, that is incredible. But I'm really wanting to focus on the on the texts that are uh, less read. Uh, What is the other one? The El Norte, All the Pretty Horses. The River and the Wall. Oh, The River and the Wall is a brand new uh, documentary that's out that has... uh, some people basically go down the Rio Grande, and it's it's uh, environmental and cultural, but it's really just showing the the beauty of the land and uh, and the difficulty of doing something like a wall for uh, for this. But it's a it's a very uh, just came out this summer, I believe, uh, so it's new. And then there's we mentioned La Llorona. I'm gonna have to look in to see what that's about. But there's also Bless Me Ultima, which I'm considering, which is Rudolfo uh, Anaya's uh, famous uh, one, one of the first Chicano writers, uh, novelist. So I believe that was in the Great American Read list. Good, wasn't it? I, I don't think so. Yeah. I can't I think so. Yeah, it sounds it sounds familiar to me, and I'm like, where do I know that from? Yeah. I think it was the Great American Read list. So, um. All the Pretty Horses, is that the one with, um, is it Matt Damon? Mm-hmm. Okay. My student last night in my film class said, have you ever seen this movie? And I was like, no, I don't even know what this is. And he's like, my grandfather and my father were extras on the movie. And the knife in which uh, whichever character stabs someone with, it's now in my possession. And I was like, this is so <laughs> random. Like, why are, So now I'm encountering this again today, and I don't know why. That's a weird aside. But um, what do they call it? The, like the Mandela effect? Like once yeah. you see something, it keeps coming yes. up over and over. Yeah. So apparently I need to watch that movie. Um, maybe I should take your class. Um, so for anyone wanting to take your class, what is your, um, your elevator pitch to them? My elevator pitch. I think it's. I think it's the uh, that we're going to be looking at the literal and metaphoric ba- uh, border between Texas and or between the United States and Mexico. I'm focusing mainly on Texas, but that um, that it, it's not a it's not a hard line. It's not a wall. It's a it's sort of a vast territory that actually is the native land of uh, not only 
indigenous uh, Americans, but also uh, the uh, as Aslan, the the, uh, the I guess the descendants of the Asian uh, immigrants that moved down to central Mexico and then uh, moved uh, back back up into the north. So there's lots of Native American um, issues that are involved with the. The, um, one of the ways that Texas and Mexico came together over the border was who's going to take care of the Apaches who keep running back and forth and, and raiding everything. And, and that was one place where, and that's a, that's a bone. That's where the Chicanos came. We're like, no, this is, that's why we're, we also have a little bit of a space with the, with Mexico as well, space between Mexico and the U S this is, this is where we're from. This is our culture. I love that line about it being a hard line. And there's a lot of erasure of history happening right now where we, we have forgotten a lot. And it sounds like you're going to remind um, perhaps the, the folks that take your class and hopefully listen to the podcast about that. That's cool. So are the books that you're reading, are they available in both languages? And that could be for both either of you um, on that. One of, one of the main characteristics really of, uh, Latino Latinas, it tends to be bilingual. Uh, so there are things like Gloria Anzaldúa's book here uh, has sections that are in Spanish that aren't translated and vice versa. And she uses them as a kind of, in a kind of rhetorical way. It's like, okay, you, if you, you need to be bilingual to, to get what's going on here. So she uses it to, here's this, you have to do Spanish to get this and, have to know English to do this. So I, the the specific novels that I'm reading uh, are more, I would say, more English than, well, the, the Yuri Herrera, which is this incredible, weird, uh, contemporary Mexican novel, um, is translated. So uh, yes, it's, it's not really bilingual itself, because it's... Uh, I have the translation for the class, but it was originally written in Spanish. The Ana Castillo uh, is, uh, I think, was originally written in English, but has you know Spanish sprinkled throughout. But there's going to be a good deal of the, the poetry that I that I have is is almost typically always bilingual. Uh, sometimes whole sections, or sometimes translating back and forth. It just depends. It's kind of that, that's the idea, right? The sliding back and forth between, between the languages and between the cultures. That's really what, they're, what, what a lot of the authors are trying to get across. Um, a broader question for you, Emily, is does the library have a lot of bilingual um, books or is that something you guys are looking to have? No, but that's definitely somewhere that we should expand. Um, we only relatively recently in the last few years have had money to buy actual print books. Um, For a long time, it was thought that kind of print books were going more by the wayside, that everybody wanted more electronic sources so that they could do research from their house uh, at work, somewhere where they didn't have to be in the actual library themselves to get the materials. But we've actually had students request print print materials, and so we've been very fortunate in the last couple of years. The administration has favored us with giving us some 
some money so we can try to build that print collection back up. So we're always looking for suggestions. And I think having some bilingual materials, some materials in other languages is a fabulous idea, especially the literature piece. Um, as we're trying to encourage more people to come into the library and use our resources, I think meeting them where they are rather than where we, our idea of where they are is, um, is something we definitely need to um, start doing. We do have, of course, dictionaries in multiple languages. Um, and we have, like I said, stories that are written by um, possibly by some of the same authors that Chris has mentioned. Um, and by uh, we have a lot of stories that are written by current youth, like I said, uh, DACA or um, even children now whose uh, parents are going through immigration who maybe don't fit under DACA. They're American citizens, but their parents aren't. Um, but insofar as literature that is written in different languages, we do not have very much of. However, I am currently making a book list um, for November and for December, so I can put some materials on there. Did that just break your heart? <laughs> it did. I, You know, I, I, we think of these various pieces and we think, okay, we need to bolster over here in nonfiction because students are writing papers on this. We we just brought the fiction collection back last year, and so we're building it up. But we, of course, are going to miss certain pieces, and it does break my heart that I didn't think of that. But oh, I I'm glad that, to think of it now. I meant that they t wanted to take books away. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, that too. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, it's gone from four floors to one floor. Right? Yes, it so. has. Yeah, once upon a time, we were at five floors, actually, because we had the basement and then all four floors above. And, yeah, now we're just... Now we're just one floor, but we do the best we can with what we have. And, you know, we have students who come in every morning. We consider them our regulars and students who are checking books out. And the fiction, especially as we are continuing to grow it, we see more and more folks checking out fiction, which makes me very happy because yeah. Reader's Advisory was my favorite part of my job when I worked at the public library. So I'm glad to get to do it again, even if it's just on a much smaller basis. Well, I'm glad you're over there. That makes me very oh, happy that well, thank you. someone who, uh, you know, likes books is in charge of our library. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a heartening uh, thought to have. Um, thank you guys so much for coming in today. Thank I appreciate it. Thank you for listening, book lovers, and remember to click subscribe wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Special thanks goes to the Mag7 for providing us with music, Cullen Lutz, and Stevie Brashears for designing us such a cool logo. See you next time.